Okay, everyone, it looks like we are going live. Uh, welcome to another ARCS chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. Couple of quick things to say before we get started. Um, as always, there is a slight delay between when we're doing this chat and when it's getting ported out to YouTube. So just be aware of that when we are actually on the um, answering questions within YouTube. We also remind you to please sign in to your Gmail or YouTube account that allows you to play along in the chat while we're doing the live stream. And finally, for some ARCS news, we just announced today the fact that we are accepting proposals for the ARCS 2022 virtual conference. Um, it's being held the first week of December. I think it's December 5th, 7th, and 9th, 2022. Proposals will be accepted until July 15th, 2022. Um, it's gonna be a little bit more of a streamlined experience than it was in 2021, although we were very proud of that program, so we hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, the theme for this time around is Sustainability 360. So if you're interested in that topic, or even if you just have a good session you think on collections and registration, uh, I encourage you to submit a proposal. If you go to our website, you will see links all over the place on how to uh, submit something for that conference or that virtual conference. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand this over to our host, John Robinette, and we were gonna play around with some videos today and have a good time. So we'll see you soon. Hey, hey, welcome everybody for uh, this last episode of our season and indeed the last episode that uh, this ARCS chat crew is going to uh, be doing um, with me as always, of course, is Robin and then Amanda Robinson, who hard registrars down in Florida in the what I can never remember what museum it is. It's the Ringling, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> You, you, you keep switching it on me. I do. So, I just bounce around Tampa Bay to confuse you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've been, uh, we've been doing this. Well, I've been doing this for five years. I've been working with Amanda for four years, started out doing it on Twitter. Do you remember that? Um, mm -hmm. I did it one year by myself and then I said, Hey, 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 we need some help. And then the, the board hooked me up with Amanda who just threw her hat in the ring and just started, you know, running with it. And she has been uh, instrumental in helping to transition into, uh, this YouTube format, which um, we did in order to try and reach a, a bigger audience. And um, so, yeah, it's been been real. But of course, I mean, Robin's been here from the beginning. She you know, worked with Mark Schlimmer to start the the Twitter chat. So, um, and, you know, that that went really well and, uh, you know, well enough to to want to continue it. So I've uh, been uh, really thankful for for everyone's help and in making this happen just because it's, uh, it takes a lot of effort and, um, all the, uh, the emails that, uh, don't get returned, the invitations that don't get accepted and the, 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 the spreadsheets at the beginning of the year, trying to develop topics. It's been, uh, really, uh, you know, it takes, it takes a lot, a lot of brain power goes into it. So, um, do you all, do you all have any, uh, big, uh, memories from the, your time here in this 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 latest generation of uh, of the chat that you want to recall. I mean, I think a lot about my embarrassing moments on a completely international platform. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't recall an embarrassing moment. For you, <laughs> That's good. No, we'll no, seriously. <laughs> no, no. I'm the one that has the uh, embarrassing moments. <laughs> I was just going to say, I really uh, appreciated how everyone, especially when the universe known as COVID-19 started, how everyone came together then and seeing kind of the streams explode and also seeing, you know, past board, current board, this team, everyone kind of pulled together um, 
especially with John's context to the art courier world, having that group come together, talking about their COVID experience. I think it helps. Sounds so cheesy. Bring connection during a time yeah. when I think we were all feeling really isolated. So um, that I think was really important. Nice to have. Yeah. Thing. Nice thing to have. Yes, definitely Robin, a proud you, moment and a highlight. Do you remember that time I had to do, I had to, we were on Twitter and I did a, a, a Twitter chat from my car in the parking lot of the train station. That was fun. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, Robin. I don't know if I, anyway. <laughs> so I got I, off the train. I was immediately like, tweeting questions so uh but you know i i agree like once you know i the the spring and fall and and summer of uh 2020 was uh was probably uh the 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 bigger moment of of it all just because we were you know all just trying to react to that crazy situation so um yeah so you know and also i want to thank the board for you know supporting us in our you know wild ideas to to do whatever we do or mostly just kind of stay out of the way and let us um you know pursue topics that uh that we thought were interesting and uh and all that so um with that in mind we we are still looking for um people to host the next generation of this so if you have any wild ideas uh different format types or different um different, uh, let's say, uh, ambitious proposals that you might, uh, you know, see the chat going, you know, we, we've developed a criteria for it, but it's really just like a way to interact with, with the membership. And that's kind of it. So, um, you know, that that's really the, the only thing that we really want out of the chat. So if you have any ideas, you know, even if you don't want to host it, send them, send them our way info at arcsinfo.org. And, uh, you know, we'd be uh, happy to we being the board, not me and Amanda, um, you know, we're, <laughs> we're not involved in picking success successors. So anyway, um, hopefully by the fall of next year, we can have a different version of this or versions. Maybe uh, we uh, consider different time zones or multiple chats, multiple languages. What about it? Mm-hmm. Think about it, send it our way. So speaking of the next plan, we're going to talk about the next generation of collections specialists today. I wrote that ahead of time. Um, yeah, so um, today we're going to hear from professionals in the academic community uh, who are going to provide their insights on the necessary changes uh, that we need to make to our academic programming in, in order to prepare us for the challenges that lie ahead. So uh, in these are all pre-recorded videos, then we gave everyone the same set of uh, questions as, as prompts, and, uh, and they're responding to those questions. And um, they're, they're fairly straightforward things. You know, what are the, what are the challenges that you, say, that you see? What, what, what were the academic, uh, you know, emphasis? What was the academic emphasis of the past? Um, how are we going to broaden access to the field? Um, uh, to create more diverse and 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 um, and and broader, what's the word? How did I word it? Amidst the great resignation, how do we attract new people to the field? That's that's the goal, right? So um, yeah, and then what uh, what's the future look like? So that's how we're going to play this out today. So the panelists today include. Uh, Dr. Ely Wood from the Huntington Library. She's the Nadine and Robert A. Scothheim Director of Education and Public Programs, uh, the Huntington in Los Angeles. And um, then Dr. Nicole Hodges-Persley. She's the Interim Vice Provost of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, and also a, an Associate Professor, pr- 
professor at the Department of American Studies and African American Studies at the University of Kansas. That is the shortest title I have ever read. Um, Dr. Rosanna Flutie, the interim director uh, of the Museum Studies Program and clinical assistant professor of Museum Studies at New York University. Um, and last but not least, uh, 16 Crutchfield Trippett, the art director for WiseKey and the developer of the Fine Art International Management MBA at the Geneva Business School. So we're going to start with uh, Dr. Wood's uh, commentary today, and then we're going to, uh, you know, pause it intermittently and uh, take your questions and, and, and take questions and comments uh, between the videos as well. So let's, uh, let's get this started, Robin. Queued up. Uh, being a, a faculty member, I was drawing a lot on my prior experience working both um, as a young person in a museum, but also having worked as a staff member in public programs um, before I went off to graduate school and did all that. So as I went into this sort of new model, thinking about teaching people, museum studies was really drawing on the experience of um, how do we help other people experience museums in the way that we really like and care about. And that really kind of focused my thinking around what is my responsibility as an educator to support um, the practice of museums and the people of museums. So really thinking about the role that everyone has in relation to a collection, in relation to the experience and how we're bringing all that together. So thinking about um, whether or not I'm an educator doesn't mean that I can't focus on collections. I focus on collections in a slightly different way than a collections care person might or a registrar or a curator. And we're all coming at it in different directions. And so that was one of the things that was really important to me in thinking about this next generation um, in museum studies was thinking about more holistically how we all come together around the same idea or sort of that core idea. So that, that sort of like shaped a lot of my um, thinking in the bigger in the bigger picture, if that gets you where you want to go. Yeah, yeah. And explain your role now at the Huntington. So I made the leap. I went back. I went back into practice to uh, actually profess what preach what I professed or, or uh, practice what I professed. Uh, so I'm now the director of education and public programs, which is the um, the major division within the Huntington that emphasizes on public engagement. We cover um, all areas from volunteers, school programs, um, gallery experiences, public programs, community engagement, and so forth. So we have a pretty strong role institutionally working with all of the collecting divisions uh, and others to really activate the experience of the Huntington and help people make connections to our collections and really working on, especially with um, because we have a research library, how we are able to surface the stories that exist in the, in the library collections, which are enormous and vast, but also in helping connect people to the botanical collections and the gardens and our art collections. So it's a, it's a very um, transdisciplinary, comprehensive way of thinking about um, the world. And that's been, it's been really interesting um, to make the shift from being a faculty member back into practice, I actually quite enjoy um, trying to make it all come together in the way that I had hoped my students would. That's so interesting. Um, God, I, I wish this was the live thing. I want to ask you so many questions. Um, but we'll stick to the script. We'll stick to the script. Um, so in, in previous, well, historically, well, 
maybe historically is even too big of a term. Uh, what what is the quote unquote traditional uh, way that you've seen of teaching museum studies and like you know maybe a certain emphasis on X Y or Z or you know ex- explain kind of what where where we typically come from. What I, what I would say is that I think most typically where early professional training programs were really focused very disciplinarily uh, in terms of you're going to learn how to do curatorial practice, but maybe you don't even talk about what curatorial practice is. You're just becoming expert and depth in your field. Uh, you might be studying um, collections care and, and management, for example, that that was really the the focus of your work, or you might just be doing education. And one of the things that I think, you know, so it was sort of like very specific to the role within the museum. So you wouldn't cross the streams or, you know, like you're, you're only a collections person, you're only education, you're only curatorial. And I think that one of the things that I really liked about the program that we developed at IUPUI was that it was very much that, yes, you can be a collections person, but you have to understand why education matters. And if you're an educator, you have to understand why collections matters and why you can't just let everybody sort of play with all the stuff all the time. Um, to really kind of bring a different perspective that this is a whole institution that has many parts and that you have to understand how it all works together. That I think becomes a more valuable way of working together around, you know, like we're all in this towards a mission of an institution. And that mission may have many different pathways, but we're all part of that same idea. So so that I think is really kind of something that was important to me. Um, and, you know, and there's still programs out there that are very much focused on just being a curator, or just doing collections or or any of those kinds of things. And I think that the nuance that it brings actually helps for a lot more collaborative work internally, um, as much as it does kinds of planning and how we're able to tackle challenges that come up in different ways. Robin, can we pause it for a second? Um, this is super interesting. So, uh, of us here, uh, Amanda's, I think the only one that actually has a museum studies degree. Um, uh, how would you say her response? Is that true, Robin? Did I did I miss a peak? So I have, have a, I have a graduate certificate. So oh, I okay. have from I GW as I think most of us do with distance learning. But yeah, I have a graduate okay. certificate on top of that. Okay, all right. My my bad. I'm sorry. Uh but how 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 does her description of of the that quote unquote traditional um methodology uh speak to to your experience studying uh in, in a museum studies program? Well, and I guess I should also qualify that my graduate certificate is in museum studies, but the program I went through was art historical based. Um, it, I really appreciated hearing her like more generalist perspective because from what she's saying, it sounds like the programs they have developed really give you an understanding of what it's like to work in a museum. Like everything you do, are doing should be related to your mission. You have to interact with different departments and you have to have some type of understanding of what your facility staff's doing and why they do what they do, what your educational staff's doing and why they do what they do. Um, because so much of the work we do in museums are collaborative. My program, I was able to develop a lot of the coursework myself so I could pick and choose. And um, I did a lot of things that were object-based because I knew I wanted to do collections management work. And I I would argue that my program was good and it gave me some idea of what you were, you were doing, but it wasn't, it probably wasn't as comprehensive as a full-on museum studies program would have been. And 
it was nowhere near as valuable as the real life work experience I got in internships or jobs. With that being said, um, I, I took a lot of like governance classes and I understood really well from, through my program how an institution should work. And I, I found that that actually served me the, the best in terms mm. of my, my experience in education at a graduate level. Robin, did you see something similar or? Yeah, I mean, I ended up here in kind of a roundabout way. I think that a lot of people from my generation ended up where yeah, my 100%. my master's degree is um, historic administration, public history, because I was going to save buildings, theoretically, um, but ended up getting a job with a museum. So then when I was working on the job is when I kind of thought I should go out and get a graduate certificate specializing in uh, collections management. So that's why I did the GW program way back when they used to deliver it via CDs, which shows my age. So um <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, it's kind of like what Amanda said. I took a couple museum studies classes when I did my grad work, and they were more about that governance level and that kind of thing. So when I did it within, when I was working and doing a graduate certificate, it was so based on just ethical collection. It's the GW program, right? So it's all preventative conservation, um, legal and ethical stuff, all that. So it's hard for me to compare um, what people are learning nowadays in these yep. more official museum studies degrees. I think that people are coming out with much uh, stronger base than I ever did. It was all stuff like while I was working, I was like, oh, this makes more sense now. Like it's like yeah, yeah. practical applications. So it's just a slightly different world, I think. Nowadays. Yeah, I mean, if anyone listening has any other insight or is in a, currently in a program, please let us know in the comments. We'd love to, to see. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on with the video, but I do want to note that uh, due to time constraints, uh, we do have four of these and they're all... Uh, significant in length. So uh, we will be posting the entire videos uh, if you want to see their their full commentary on um, on the ARC's YouTube channel. So um, because we unfortunately won't get to, to all of the um, all of their responses uh, to, to these questions. So uh, with that, let's uh, let's continue uh, with uh, with Dr. Wood and um, and get another response. She's going to talk about the future or new new issues. So good. I mean, so what I want to do next is I want to get your perspective on some of the key changes that are taking place and uh, and then follow that up with what um, if you think that these changes are being reflected in newer curriculum that are being developed. Um, there's no question that some of the major areas of change that are happening are really understanding um, the nuances of audiences and the importance of institutions being able to, to understand themselves as entities in, uh, in a cultural environment. So I'm talking a lot about understanding diversity, access, inclusion, accessibility, all of those kinds of things, but not just from the audience standpoint, but also from the kinds of collections, the collecting that we do, the practices that we follow, um, the, the meaning that, that uh, objects have that can be different across different types of audiences. And I think that that shift is really critical in helping us be able to better, to become more relevant for communities. And that is part of our survival. Um, so I think it's, it's all kind of interconnected around, um, you know, Stephen Weil says, being about somebody uh, rather than something that we're really trying to really understand how and why the kinds of collections we have matter to different types of groups of people. So I think 
um, you know, decolonization and decolonizing the collection is a really good example of paying attention to what is there. Why do we have it? What is it here for? How can we better use it? How do we care for it? Does it belong to us? Should it belong to someone else? Like, I think those kinds of questions are pretty key and they, they cut across all the institution. Um, thinking about um, how we're representing objects or how we're telling stories about the collections, how we're pulling out um, different stories that have not been told before. I think all of those kinds of things are really, that is sort of at the core of everything, but it can, it can even go down to how we take care of objects and thinking about culturally relevant practices around managing collections, for example. Um, they're, you know, taking care of, of indigenous collections has a lot of variation that sometimes kind of fly in the face of what you learned in school. Um, that you're not supposed to let something have light, but there are certain types of um, native objects that need care and feeding in a very, very different way that might make you feel a little bit like, but that's not best practice. But I think the question is, um, going back to that, what, what does best practice mean is really about what's good work around doing the best by all the people involved or all of the needs that are there. It's not just a one step. This is the only way to do it. So that sort of expanding ways of knowing about how we, how we deal with uh, material objects, concepts, people, all of those kinds of things, I think, are really at that core of where we need to be shifting towards and has been for the last probably five years, for sure. So, the, so decolonization, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, these are the big issues now, right? And, um, and it, is there anything that, uh, that you would have added to the, to the list? I mean, I, I think that those are kind of the critical ones, right? Yeah, for like in general for the field as a whole, I would yeah. say very much so. Like there is a huge cultural shift happening in, I mean, in the United States in general, but um, spe specifically within the museum field, especially after everything um, we've been through in the last two years as a nation, it's it's lovely to see that being reflected in the work we do because it, it touches everything, right? Yeah. And those are those are some important questions that we've brought up on this program before, and in those conversations we've tried to answer for ourselves. I'm such a literal and practical person that I'm over here wishing programs were like teaching you more of the, like, um, not so much the logistics because you can, you know, the museum registration methods is going to walk you through how you need to book a shipment and all that kind of jazz as a registrar. But, you know, like, how do you advocate to build the larger staff? Like, how do you argue for the resources you need to get the collections care Management. work done. Yeah, Management. yeah. And we talk yeah. about it a lot because it seems to be a natural path in the curatorial track to mm -hmm. go from, you know, curator to leader to management. Um, and some of those leadership programs have been developed to do just that, but we don't really offer that for other right. avenues of the field. Yeah. Well, you know, 16's comments uh, that we're, we're going to get to at the end uh, kind of veer a little bit into that territory. So uh, we can maybe uh, comment a little bit more on that. But I'm going to go back to um, the diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, accessibility ideas, because uh, Dr. Hodges Persley, who's the uh, got the next video, we can go ahead and cue that up, uh, Robin. And um, 
she, she, this is her, this is her profession, right? This is what she does and she teaches. And, uh, so, uh, she's going to speak to it. We're going to skip ahead a little bit because, um, we're going to run out of time, but she's got, um, uh, some some interesting things to say about it because uh, she um, is an expert in the field. And I think she's also got a really interesting perspective from the point of view that she is not a museum professional specifically, but uh, but she was in charge of the museum studies program for a bit before she, um, you know, got further promoted. So um, I think it's interesting to have someone who is in charge of a program that, ha- that has to see it from a different perspective um and and we're having a slight network issue so let me see if i can reload okay i'm gonna go on but but you see what i'm saying amanda it's like Mm -hmm. we have to you know someone who is viewing museum studies almost from the outside uh and um and 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 from their point of view they're gonna you know see what they what they deem the most critical uh, elements of, of uh, the field. So remind me to share something with you because I, I have a funny tidbit about someone from the outside teaching. Okay, um, let's uh, let's get into that. All right, let me um, know if you guys would like me to skip ahead. Feel free to let me know, and I'm happy. All right. to do that. Okay. Sounds good. To the work as an insider outsider, if you will, um, I write about conceptual art as it relates to performance, and I have a book called Sampling and Remixing. Blackness and hip hop theater and performance, which covers conceptual artists such as Nikki S. Lee and others who explore race, ethnicity, gender, um, and uh, intersectional identity in their work. So these are the, as far as critical new subjects, I think that pertains to the art world. Um, you know, I think identity has always been central to um, our our work as artists. And so this isn't new. I think the perspective of whose identities are we talking about and what types of intersections of those identities are we concentrating on? And also asking ourselves, who is the we that we're talking about, whether that means um, the collections or the artists that we seek to place in our museums, um, the stories and cultures that we are concerned with when we're cataloging and we're acquiring pieces, what communities we choose to think as having value, um, and then bringing those space, those pieces into our spaces. Also asking the different cultural complexities that surround museums, Um, and museum objects, uh, the space that they take up within um, the actual neighborhoods where they sit, um, and the programming that surrounds the art objects and the art that we showcase. How do we showcase it? Do we consider the culture um, that not only the art is produced by and through, but the ways in which Uh, those art objects tell us stories that are not captured in the object itself. And so I'm hoping that we'll see not only critical new subjects of thinking about the complexity of our identities, but the ways in which we interact in society um, and what's missing from our collective human narrative. Um, I'm also thinking about the ways that Uh, particular social constructs of identity will impose on digital space. We are now talking about metaverse and NFTs and, um, you know, digital art that is not necessarily physically tangible in the same way. Uh, And so I'm really interested in the ways that these social constructs of identity, how will they translate into those spaces or will they be completely um, set aside for us to reimagine ourselves anew outside of these uh, social constructs that um, have 
connections to systemic inequity and historic oppression. So uh, that's something that I'm seeing pop up with museum study students. I just recently did a master's thesis with a student on metaverse culture and the relationship to the existing museum space. So that's exciting. Um, another question that I was asked was thinking about creating curriculum and how do we create curriculum to address this moment and how does that relate to programs? Um, I think thinking about who has the seat at the table and curating the table in our spaces to make sure that we have representation, not only embodied res um, representation, but cultural and ideological representation within our spaces. Uh, we should um, think about not having everyone of the same racial identity, ethnic identity, cultural, religious, um, varying mobilities. I think we have to think as broad and diverse as the world we live in. And we also have to think about class because I think within the museum space, it's very challenging um, to cultivate and create cultural space that is really um, mediated by and through this idea of what is good art. And I think the high-low art debates that um, have ebbed and flow, flowed over the past 20 years, I think still plague us and the art museum. And I think we could look to theater to think about site-specific work and the ways that we might invite communities in not as um, necessarily just a form of restitution or reconciliation, but to ask non-experts about how they would like to experience art um, and how they would like it to interact in their lives. What type of accessibility would they need to be able to engage? Would that involve childcare? Would that involve food and support? Would that involve different hours of accessibility? And I think we miss, um, opportunities to create really strategic conversations that might allow us to cultivate new opportunities and experiences to make art more accessible. Um, I see a question here about the great resignation and how do we... We, we... we might have to come back to the the great resignation one because I think that's a, that's a, that's a big one. Um, you know, in, t in terms of attracting new audiences, that's where that question was. But let's go back uh, and talk about the the, the resi resignation, representation. Um, and I think that this is going to be the the defining challenge that uh, that this next generation faces. I mean, if I can speak on such a grandiose level, right? But it's um, you know, museums have started to do it in the gallery space, right? But it seems to, you know, the barriers, there's a glass ceiling, it seems like, you know, and that sort of uh, diversification of upper administration is is really sort of the next phase. And that's the the hard one, <laughs> yeah, the harder one. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lot easier to change the galleries because you do it every three months anyway. But um, I mean, any thoughts on that? I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's going to be critical, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know how we do it, but I mean, look, well, I say, I don't know how we do it. The, we have, we have ideas, right. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, mentorships and, and internships and, uh, things of this nature, but it's, it's really about, uh, you know, being able to attract that, uh, that next audience. Um, uh, right. So, yeah. And making it accessible and making it a space where they feel welcome. I think yeah. it's a big part of it and a, a big part of what she was, she was talking about. And I'm really inspired. I want to take a class with her. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, so many interesting things to say, and I just want to absorb it like a sponge, but 
yeah, we're kind of, I mean, everyone's doing this. We're all fighting with the cycle that's been in place for a very, very long time. And it's going to be really hard to change culture and access and equality. It's, it's a, it's a lifetime commitment. It's going to be generational commitment for sure. But we, you know, it may sound small making changes in the gallery with what we collect and what we display and, and giving those, those artists and those artworks space, but that's, we got to start somewhere. It's a good place to be. Um, And in terms of accessibility with, you know, making, yeah, I think back about to my graduate program, I was the only one who was able to complete their graduate certificate because I was in a financial position that could do it. I had family support who would let me take classes over the summer. Every person who started in my graduate program with me to get their certificate dropped out. And there were like five of us, seven of us. It wasn't like a huge number out of the whole cohort of 15 or so. I was the only one in the class before me. There was only one other person, you know, and I had to take out loans to do it, you know, like, so we make it really inaccessible. Like it's great. These programs are there and that's lovely, but not if no one can do it. And, and, and some, I can't remember if it was, if it was in this one or if it was uh, another, another speaker, but they talk also about just being able to, you know, form a connection with the institution. And that connection usually comes from seeing part of yourself reflected in the institution. And so uh, that, that, I mean, that, that speaks to the importance of making sure the gallery represents, you know, as, as Dr. Hodges Percy says, uh, represents the neighborhood. It it represents uh, the, the, the people in, in the, in the region and, and the people of the world. Right. And, and, you know, if you don't see yourself there, then what connection can you have and why would you ever want to work there? Right. So um, that's, or, or you might want to work there to change that, but uh, it's a bigger leap. Um, uh, Robin, can you, can you play uh, a little bit more of, of her just because I think uh, she might be getting to, to that part, please. Thanks. I see a question here about the great resignation and how do we attract new people to the field and reach more diverse audiences? I think we have to ask different questions. Um, Ultimately, what does more diverse audience mean? Um, I think if you are starting from a dominant perspective that you assume a normative audience to be always already white, then we have a problem. I think, you know, if you get out of our comfort zones, you get out of your comfort zone, I get out of my comfort zone, we go into spaces to experience the world differently. Um, And that can be as simple as shopping at a different grocery store, going to a store you would never go to, or uh, inviting a community in that you know nothing about. I think we can't be afraid to be vulnerable. And um, I think when you see artists of color resigning, um, curators resigning, um, and other roles within the museum, it's because people want to be able to be at work and be accepted holistically as they are. They don't want to have to explain themselves. They don't want to have to apologize for themselves, uh, nor do the artists. They want people to have thoughtfully considered who they are before they invite them into the space. And I think that's the challenge for all of us is that we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable before our colleagues in ways that make a, might make us feel insecure. But through that insecurity, we can identify new skill sets and we can open up new opportunities to rethink and refresh how we want to cultivate art making and art experiencing in the world. 
Um, let's see. I. Yeah, we're going to have to um, unfortunately cut it. Um, you definitely need to watch the rest of this, uh, though. This is um, it's too important to 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 not finish. I think uh, this one everyone uh, will benefit from. Well, they'll all you'll all benefit from seeing it all, but this one especially. Um, I think you know that that's a super important point in terms of like you know the, the you have to have a baseline. Um, of expectation before you can change something. And right now that, that baseline expectation of what you're going to find is, is that it's from a, a white perspective, simply because we've all identified that has, has, as having to change. Right. So, um, you know, that vulnerability of making that change, I think is what she's saying, you know, it, it I, she's saying it from a, from an art perspective, but you know, I, I think it applies uh, across, across the board. Right. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, what are your thoughts, Amanda? I agree. And, and as we transition to the next video, one of the things that she had mentioned, um, and this is like from a very specific collections management perspective, reminded me of a chat that we had with um, Francis from the Minneapolis Institute, I, I believe, uh, all about like the diversification of the data of data. And, um, you know, it seems like a very simple thing, like, oh, we collected one set of data for the objects we have, but now we need to broaden and collect more information and more data. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is our goal? Like, why are we trying to do that? What's the value of that? Some of this information is incredibly sensitive. We're not always going to be able to protect and control it. Um, and, you know, where's the agency of the, of the artists or the people we're collecting this information on? Um, and I think those are types of things that we may not be able to get into at the nitty gritty when you're when you're in a graduate program, but maybe you also can. Uh, but those are not necessarily conversations we've had before. Right. I mean, can you imagine, um, I mean, what does that shift look like in, in a graduate program? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, um, yeah. I, well, it, I think a, a big part yeah. of it is a lot of what she had said. It's like, if we're going to start exploring those avenues, we need to have everybody at the table to have that conversation, you know, a room full of people that look just like you and have the same background and experiences as you, it's going to have yeah. a very limited focus, but if you yeah. broaden the doors a bit, you'll get a lot more input and perspective. Right. Right. And, and somehow, you know, and, and avoiding the tokenization of it, it's like, oh yeah, we, we checked that, that quota. It's like, it's got to be more embedded in, uh, in the methodology. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, interesting enough, like, um, I, I, there was a lot of criticism for AAM uh, when when that conference was going on. Um, I, I saw uh, you know a lot of people in, interpreting you know their programming as as biased and everything during that conference. So I mean, look, it's 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 a, the the only point is that everyone's going through this, right? And everyone's fighting to to make the the necessary changes. And um, you know, it's got to start at its core. And and that vulnerability, you have yeah. to open up yourself in order to, um, Oh, it's going to be messy change. too. And I think yeah. that's, I mean, I'm terrified of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, um, hurting someone's feelings, but that, <laughs> I got to be able, we've got to be able to get over that and forgive each other because we're human and we're going to mess yeah. up every, right. every turn. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, let's, uh, get another perspective here, uh, with, uh, Dr. Flaudi from, um, sorry, Dr. Flutie from, uh, NYU. Would you like to start this one at the beginning, John, or do you want to progress? Let's uh, let's um, let's skip ahead a little. Um, 
really appreciate her rallying. She just got over COVID, so really (laughs) glad she could join us. The question that I think was posed to me that I want to speak at length to was amid the great resignation, how do we attract new people to the field and reach more diverse audiences? Unquestionably, museums have been struggling with this for a very long time. The pandemic forced an urgency around this question. And the the shift that I've seen, and especially in how many people are leaving the field right now, and what that means for when I think of our class of 2022 that's just graduated next month, uh, excuse me, graduated last month, and in the months ahead are seeking their meaningful museum future. They want to get careers with full-time benefits. They want to be having meaningful work. And there has been so much shift in the change. So the great resignation, it's real. So many of us have started looking inward and thinking about what skills and what ways our our knowledge could be transferred to other areas, uh, what sort of understandings about uh, the, the field of museums that we possess that could be utilized elsewhere. And also just maybe more largely, why is change so hard and slow to come in museums? So I think many museum professionals have been lifting their heads and just thinking about what could be next. Is it healthy to stay in the field or is it really important to keep going? And the place that I think if I were to just impart a little bit of where I see so much oxygen, I think, coming uh, to help people sort of reside in the knowledge that what they're doing and the work that they're conducting in museums is just so critical, is really about mentoring the next generation and mentoring younger people in the field. That if one is thinking about leaving museums, and I don't think it's healthy to stay forever, all of us should try other types of career paths. Museum work just for me has been by far the most fulfilling work that I have ever done in my work, in my working world. And now that I get to teach about museums, um, alongside also still working and consulting with museums, it is such an incredible uh, profession. And yet when I think about mentorship and the lack of opportunities when we claim to see more diverse people working in museums, by extension then we will attract more diverse types of audience, and I want to caution in how we're using this word diversity, that we need to leave the field better than we found it. And I think it's time for museums to get their house in order and to really be looking inward and really be thinking about what mentorship opportunities lie within each of our organizations. And so this affects every area of the museum, including the areas that we're talking about today. But I really think that every one of us, even if we think that we might be leaving the field, we have to think about how we're going to be leaving it that much better. This might mean looking at teen programs that might be happening at your museum, looking at people who are coming through family programs, imagining what sort of impressions that they're getting about museum work. It means certainly looking at the internship opportunities, and I think that that is far and large. Uh, this, this idea of what's changed in the pandemic, I'm seeing far less internship opportunities writ large, far more paid internships. And I think that is such a wonderful 
shift that has come in the pandemic, that uh, the, the reckoning of how labor and unpaid labor had been such a formative backbone of the way museum work gets done. And now we're seeing far more paid internships that I cannot wait to see the day where there are just no more unpaid internships. And I do think that that will lift so many more types of inroads and opportunities for more diverse people to come and work. Uh, and um, so if I were to think about what the great resignation means, that is just such an important shift um, to see more mentorship opportunities, and more internships. I thank you so much for letting me join. And I am thinking of all of us as we're sort of both stretching our minds to think about the work that lays ahead, but also the important work that we're doing now. Thank you. This is really uh, a great point. Um, you know, so the, the, the original question was, you know, with so many people leaving the field, and I'm sure everyone knows people who have, you know, for one reason or another, you know, left the field. They um, during during the pandemic, you know, you know, I, I speak to to say shipping companies or other museums. They're looking for art handlers. They're looking for people all the time, right? They're understaffed in many cases, and so um, this is the. Um, the great resignation that we're talking about, right? And this is how it's it's manifesting in in our world, and um, and so you know we not only need to diversify the staff that we already have, but we need to you know bring in new people, uh, and hopefully that you know more diverse backgrounds uh, to the field. So I think this is this is what uh, you know we've we've seen for the last two uh, video clips, and um, it is. Absolutely critical, and I think driving the point home of mentorship, mentorships, and which Arcs has a mentorship program. I will remind you, and they are actively seeking volunteers for it at the moment. Um, but also, you know, the the paid internships, and so this was this has always been a, a big debate. And um, so let's um, let's uh, you know, you have any additional thoughts, Amanda? Like, is this is this on your radar, Robin? Are you seeing this as well? I'm saying definitely the internships, as you mentioned, just because as you guys know, like I help post to the the ARCS website. So I see a lot more paid internships coming through. Like people kind of know uh, that if they put internships up, there has to be a stipend or something connected to it nowadays, which has been really heartening because God knows when I started in the late nineties, early O's, it was like, <laughs> it's free labor. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you kind of knew you had to do it that way. So that's been one wonderful to yeah. see that change in the field for sure. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I can tell you, like at our organization, I think it was around. The, well, for the longest time, our museum actually hadn't paid internship programs for graduate level um, students, but they did they did get paid, and we had a lot of fellowships, and that was just like you know a diamond in the rough. But with AAMD's, uh, I can't remember if, like it was an announcement or their statement on internships a few years ago. They basically stated that if you're a participating organization, you need to be paying because free you know free labor is not acceptable anymore. And that kind of gave our museum a good like push to commit to we're either going to be paying them or they're going to be, because we're part of a university, they have to be earning credit. But ideally, they're getting both of those things at the same time, right? which right. is exciting, but again, new. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities. I just had our prep staff come back from PACN um, at Crystal Bridges in May. And um, is it Jelaine from LACMA? 
who we had on the program um, yeah, a yeah, year yeah. ago. Ju- Julia Latine. Julia Sorry, Latine. thank you. Yeah. And um, and Jeremy, I think, also at the time. Yeah, Jerry and Smith. Jerry, okay. Uh, and the Broad she started, she, yeah, she started a program at the Broad. And it was just like our, our entire prep staff came back motivated to try and get that same structure set up here. Mm-hmm. So, and it's just nice, especially in the particular field of, um, art preparators and, and art handlers, which I, again, will always say it feels the most underappreciated uh, part of our profession. It's yeah. nice to see them doing that for themselves and to really elevating those opportunities for people who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have those experiences. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I think that what we're talking about is like, you know, real, you know, tangible things that we can do right now. And, um, you know, posting salaries is, is one that, that also comes up as well. You know, ARCS is doing this now. Um, but also we should, we should keep in mind that, you know, I don't know if, you know, people younger, younger than say me are in conversation enough with people that are a generation ahead of me who might be resistant to, um, paid internships there. And, um, and I just, I I do call for you to have a a conversation with somebody about that just because, um, I know several people are, are, you know, very reactionary and like, you know, like, you know, very harsh on people that believe in unpaid internships, like, you know, but it was a reality for a long, for a long time. And I think that it's important to have that discussion, uh, with people in, in order to create a true understanding, um, that, uh, you know, th- this is a progression and it's not, it's not always easy for someone that grew up, uh, in, in experiencing things one way to make a dramatic overnight shift to this, this new radical way of thinking. And, uh, because, you know, it, of course, you know, it affects budgets and as, as well as everything else. And you can't just, you know, get your board approval to, you know, start paying everyone overnight. So I, I understand, uh, that, but I'm just saying, you know, have that, that, that dialogue. So, um, so let's, um, let's move on to the, to the last, uh, video with the 16 Crutchfield. I think she's interesting because, you know, it's up until now we've had a very sort of, um, American focused, perspective and you know she's in switzerland and uh when we pose the 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 question of more diverse audiences and attracting people to the field her response comes from a very different spot right and um we're gonna try and uh find you know where she that 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 position uh in the video so bear with us for a second but i think it's a it's an interesting proposition and another way to think about it uh, and and besides just uh diverse say um you know ethnic or racial backgrounds so um let's go ahead and play it studying in art school right now i can only encourage them to learn their craft as best as possible because they'll be the ones that we'll be listening to eventually um, in all this turmoil to set it back straight. So artists have a huge, huge uh, role to play. But I also think that with the new technologies that are being developed, uh, you know, that have been in development for the last 20 years, things such as cryptocurrencies, such as, um, you know, artificial intelligence, such as um, the metaverse, which is coming on, the Web3, which is coming on, art has a huge role to play. And we saw that with the pandemic 
in that creativity didn't stop. It's not because we're confined at home. It's not because nothing is open outside that the brain doesn't keep on creating. I mean, that's 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 where we're humans. And, um, and artists have been very, very keen. Like, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of uh, Zooming and there's been a lot of um, call conferencing, but there's also been a lot of people videoing their art, putting it on Instagram, showing it out there, sharing it to the world. You know, we've seen... Um, We've seen the Paris Royal Ballet, the, the you know play. They were dancing on the balcony from one balcony to the other, exchanging. We've seen musicians play their role and their part in a band from from different areas of the world, and I think that's opened a whole lot of new tools uh, to to express this creativity, which is not going to go away. Um, you know, once once we've had the taste of it, I think it's very difficult now to go back. Of course, it's going to be. She's talking about how we're going to have to respond to this new creativity. And, um, you know, pandemic or not pandemic. But on the other hand, there are bands reforming. We've all heard of ABBA. Let's other ones, scoot, a, uh, scoot ahead a little bit. There's now a streaming out for help and an ID problem, you know, identification issues, etc. Um, all that is a part of it. And I think we need to be open. We need to be solidary. And we need to use these new tools to fix things. Um, and... Again, in order to do that, you need to understand them. How does the curriculum address this? How do we adjust our programs? Well, again, I think um, starting from history, I'm a strong believer that history repeats itself and we can learn from our mistakes, but also just learn from history. So I think um, all the new technology is there, but it's nothing new. Uh, and we went from, from you know, up painting and sitting in an artist studio at the end of the of the 19th century to photography in the early 20th century to video to having our own PCs and everyone being democratic you know democratizing the system to now uh, you know very advanced technology which a lot of people already um, master quite well so um, teaching that in schools I think is can only be a plus. Um, also, I think one of the things that we that the pandemic has taught us is to be knowledgeable enough so that you can bounce back when there's a setback. For example, you know how many times will we organize? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and push it further a little bit. Year? Even a setback is important for students to do that. I, amidst great resignation, how do we attract new people in the field and reach more diverse audiences? Well, that I think the online has been, uh, you know, easily done. I mean, we now we don't talk about geographical regions anymore. We're we're a global world, and that's fine. Like, you know, in the MBA that I'm, you know, that I've devised, I'm not teaching it. I'm supervising it, and I'm organizing the field trips. Yeah. Um, you know, to attract more audiences, you can actually um, spread your wings and cover all sorts of different. I'm sure somebody who wanted to be a a chemist to learn, you know, to be a pharmacist, uh, never thought about working in the art world. Well, today it's possible because it's necessary and it's needed. And the art world, this new technology, AI, you know, immersive exhibitions, um, people movement in, 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 in a museum, um, interactive, all that sort of thing. They're all new, um, new areas of, of potential study and potential improvement in the art world today. So I think, um, shouldn't be a problem to attract uh, and to have diversification in your student body. Um, one of the last questions that I was given was um, 
note the changes that I'm currently seeing taking place and the role of the pandemic. Well, I think the role of the pandemic, uh, the result of it was that everything got accelerated to an incredibly fast uh, rhythm and that we need to let go of our old habits and uh, you know our old ways of teaching. I think we need to be much more aware of what's going on around us. Um, the NFT world is a completely new area, including for me with a new audience, with new communities, interacting all the time worldwide for that matter. So um, we need to embrace that as the, as the you know, faculty of, of any school and um, need to be a fay. I always think you, know, you teach people be, uh, what you know. So I think that's, that's one of the good reasons. Um, so her, her response to diversification was coming at it from a wildly different point of view, which was bringing in people from just completely different fields, which I think is, is a, is a really interesting point of view. I mean, um, now of course she's referring to, to art maybe it doesn't translate as well to say a history collection or an archive or, uh, what have you, maybe it's a tribal, uh, collection, but, um, but I think it's it's a pretty interesting perspective uh, to to think about that. And you know, if if you do get a chance to watch the whole the whole video, she ends on a very optimistic note, which I think is um, really uh, really appreciated at, at this time. So, uh, but yeah, what are you what are your thoughts on that, Amanda? Yeah, I was going to say people should listen to um, listen to her her whole video. And at the beginning, when she talks a little bit about her background and what she's doing now with the MBA program she's developed. She talks about her students and the experiences like she has people from all over the entire European continent that she's teaching. So, you know, geographical borders really don't exist in, you know, the program that they're offering. And, and that was really interesting. And I thought, gosh, maybe that's a European thing. But <laughs> in it's also an MBA that, program. It's, I mean, it's, it's yes. not an art program. It's a business right. program. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's like, you know, woo -woo, ding, ding, because not enough leadership gets taught in the field of collections management. Right. Um but yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and, and maybe it's easier in Europe because countries, multiple countries border each other in the United States. We're a bit isolated over here with just Canada and Mexico. Not just Canada and Mexico, but all we have is each other. So We know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> we only have two other countries. Europe has like multiple countries they can count yeah. on. Multiple yeah. Hands. I mean, Robin, what's your thought? I mean, your your background is 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 really different and not necessarily art uh, oriented. I mean, do you think that? I mean, look, yeah, of course, someone with a computer science degree can come in and work in, for a database company, but does it go uh, beyond that for you? Yes, a little bit. I mean, my background is weird. Where I, my undergrad is anthropology, I was going to be an archaeologist, and then I got a computer science minor to make my IBM computer salesman father happy with doing anthropology <laughs> as a bachelor's degree. And then I switched over to museum. So I think that there's skills that people can use. I know definitely there's some folks I know who have dealt with database conversions who are now working for hospitals and other groups helping with database conversions, which I have found very interesting. Um, I think having a certain skill set is always important when you're in our field. I also really truly believe that while no job is perfect and you will always find unhappiness, generally speaking, you need to be pretty satisfied with what you're doing because this is what we spend most of our days doing and thinking about and debating about. So yeah. I think that if you find yourself not happy or miserable, you really got to reassess. And it's it's easy for me to say that too, where it's like, I'm lucky my partner 
provides my healthcare and is very nice and lets me do silly, you know, things like not silly, but things that are a little off kilter and not as traditional sometimes with work. But um, I, I do believe that you need to have at least a little bit of, of self-satisfaction with all these jobs. And if you can find some skill sets within your background that help you do the, a different job that is still applicable, I think that's an important thing. You know what I mean? Because again, we spend way too much time doing our jobs, you know? Yep. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing, too, that their skill set can translate to a different career. Um, you know, as registrars and collections managers, you're essentially a project manager. So, um, you know, and that is an essential component of, of, of any career. So, um, and, you know, we hope that, you know, given the, uh, the changes that we see afoot, that uh, we can also attract other people that have, um, you know, interesting skill sets that can contribute to, to the things that we do. So that is, um, I think we're, we're going to have to leave it today. Uh, we just hit the hour mark. Um, but I do want to thank the panelists for taking the time to record their videos uh, and send us their thoughts. Like I said, we're going to have them up on the uh, ARCS YouTube channel. And I think they are all worth uh, a, a listen because they are, um, there's a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh discovery and, and education that went into those comments, even if they're condensed to a shorter period of time. So um, we we can all learn from that. And, um, you know, that's uh, going to be uh, this crew signing off for Arcs Chat. Uh, you know, Amanda, Robin's been uh, wonderful doing this together. And um, I have still only met Amanda once in real per in real life. Uh, at the ARCS conference 2019. I've met Robin two or three times. So um, maybe we can meet again in person. <laughs> so, or maybe we're just going to keep our regular ARCS chat time and uh, keep doing We'll Zoom. just do this every Tuesday. So, yeah. <laughs> or every Thank Tuesday, God. the first of the month. <laughs> Thank God you um, you have a job that allows you to, to take the time to do this. So... Um, and well, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just say on behalf of ARCS too, since I'm like the official representative, uh, thanks to you both for the time and effort you've taken in lining up people, the research, all that kind of stuff. Just huge thank you. And this will live for as long as YouTube lives, which uh, God knows, but as long as <laughs> Google and YouTube is around, these will live on. And again, like John said, if someone else is interested in taking this program on a different format and a different thought, please email us at info at arcsinfo.org. Um, we are always open to new ideas. And we, you know, we have a, a newer, some newer board members who are really excited about this program. So if you think you want to take this on, <laughs> let us know. But again, <laughs> huge thanks to John and Amanda for, for spearheading yeah, the past It was fun. And, uh, you know, I, again, I'm going to recognize uh, Mark Schlimmer for even starting the, the format in the first place to, to be able to have this dialogue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, even, to be able to, to have the dialogue, uh, you know, directly with your professional organization um, is, I think, uh, an important important concept. So um, let's hope it uh, can continue here in the future. Um you know, and maybe we'll do an offshoot. That's an unrated uh, version or something. Um, <laughs> um, all right. Anyway, with that, uh, we're gonna we're gonna close up shop. Uh, remember, the podcast is gonna come out uh, this coming Friday. Uh, look for it on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Um, and uh, join the mentorship program because, as we've just heard. Uh, 
it's very important to your career uh, and for the field at large. And uh, any other uh, final thoughts, you two? Just a big thank you to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for, for your time and listening <laughs> more than anything, I guess, you know, the tuning in and <laughs> downloading the podcast, you know, replaying and uh, the, the YouTube videos. It's, it's super important uh, to, to the whole thing uh, perpetuating itself. So, um, and congrats to the new board members who just started. I'm going to keep going here. <laughs> so, I'm just going to have to cut president. you off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, do you guys okay. hear the one about the chicken? Uh, anyway. All right, so, everyone. <laughs> okay, everyone. Thanks again. Stay safe. Thanks again to John and Amanda, and we will see you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.